Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 284 of the podcast. It's July 19th, 2017. My guest today is Dr. Margie Balfour. She's the lead author of an article that was published in the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety. That article was titled, Using Lean to Rapidly and Sustainably Transform a Behavioral Health Crisis Program, Impact on Throughput and Safety. So today we're talking about that article, the important improvement work that led to it, and Dr. Balfour's belief, as stated in the article, that said, quote, Lean methods can positively affect safety and throughput and are complementary to patient-centered clinical goals in a behavioral health setting. Dr. Balfour is the VP for Clinical Innovation and Quality at Connections Health Solutions, one of the largest providers of psychiatric emergency care in Arizona, and she is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Arizona. She received her MD and PhD in neuroscience from the University of Cincinnati and completed residency and a fellowship in public and community psychiatry at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. So if you want to read her full bio, if you would like uh, a link to the article, which you can read for free courtesy of the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety, you can go to leanblog.org slash 284. I also have a four-page PDF summary of the podcast if you'd like to share that with colleagues. Um, so as always, thanks for listening. Again, for the episode blog page and links, go to leanblog.org slash 284. Well, Margie, hi. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today to uh, share your story. Thanks for having me. So before we get into um, the case study um, that was in the article, maybe if you can introduce yourself uh, first for the audience a little bit about your professional background and, and what you do. Okay, well, my name is Margie Balfour. I'm a psychiatrist and I work for an organization called Connections Arizona. And we run several crisis centers throughout Arizona for, for mental health crisis. And I actually started off as a researcher. I have a MD and also a PhD in neuroscience and I was gonna be in a lab doing research is what I thought I was gonna do for my career. And then I sort of found that I would get more and more kind of cognitive dissonance on why am I seeing people in the ER getting not the greatest care while also then spending some of my time over in you know the ivory tower of research. And so I got more and more interested in how do you actually deliver good care to people. So I sort of evolved into services research and then really into quality. And I learned about lean when I was at my, my previous position. I'm at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, which is oh. a mm-hmm. large level one trauma center, and they had actually gotten into some regulatory trouble, um, a lot of it around overcrowding in the ER, a lot of it around the psychiatric patients in the ER. And so during that time, I and um, one of my colleagues, we went and did our Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt training, and our project was really around all of those psych patients who were scattered throughout this huge emergency room. It's like 19,000 patients a month go through there. And really trying to identify them quickly, get them seen quickly, and and really tighten up the process for them. And so after after that, I came out to Arizona and did the work that's described in the paper. Yeah, and you, you mentioned Parkland. Um, I, I lived in Dallas in that area at the time, and you're right, there was a lot in the local media about some of the challenges and the need 
to reduce waiting times and delays for, for listeners across the country, around the world, probably recognize the name Parkland, of course, because of um, President John F. Kennedy being taken there um, on the day he was uh, assassinated. So there's a lot of a lot of history at Parkland. There is a, a new Parkland, a new yes. building that opened up in the, the past couple of years, which has hopefully helped with some of those um, structural problems. But um, you know, it usually goes beyond the building into processes and systems and the way people do their work, right? Right. And then this was in the old building, but a lot of lessons learned through through that whole process were then translated into the new building. So, um, you know, it was a it was a rough time going through all of that, you know, intense uh, need for change. But yeah. I think everyone came out of it better. Yeah. And, you know, as we start talking about some of the work you've done more recently there in Arizona, you know, in in the article, the journal article, uh, both you know the introduction and the, the conclusion to the article. One, one thing I love in particular, uh, just beyond the improvement story, is the way you emphasize, and I, and I think correctly, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to emphasize this a lot in my work, that lean really focuses on quality and safety, not just flow and throughput. Um, so I'm kind of you know curious if, if you'd be willing to comment on on how you know, thankfully, you, you got that education. Uh, do, do you see some people having a, a misunderstanding about that in some way? Well, I think lean is attractive to a lot of, of people in healthcare and other industries because it does have these tools. And I think I was very fortunate in my lean training. We, I did it through a University of Texas at Dallas through their management school. And um, the the course there really emphasized that it's a philosophy and a management style not just a toolbox. And so you have to start off with thinking, well, what is the outcome that you want? And in healthcare, I think lean is very attractive because, especially in emergency room settings, because it does focus so much on waste. Mm -hmm. And in healthcare, that's waiting. And in ERs, throughput is such a hugely important thing. That's a lot of the metrics that we're required to report are all around throughput. And so sometimes I think it's seen as a tool to increase throughput, but it's so much more than that. And if you mm -hmm. think about like, why do we have all these throughput measures? Well, it's because, you know, we assume that if you, if your door to doctor time is short, then people will get treatment quicker and they'll have better outcomes. And so um, that was a huge part of the problem that we were seeing was that there was such a delay and our whole philosophy in our in our organization is get people seen and treatment started quickly. So you, um, it was very good to be able to try to see if some of those quality outcomes came to fruition as well. So mm -hmm. things like the injuries and not having to call security and things like that. Yeah, and, and those are all really important goals. And I mean, in, in some ways. Uh, Flow and throughput and uh, reducing door-to-dock time is very directly uh, a quality element uh, is, as well, right? Right. I mean, because I mean, the longer you're in a hospital, the longer there's time for some adverse outcome to happen, right? So, I mean, you want to get people seen quickly and get them through quickly because that's good patient care. Mm -hmm. But also, if you start treatment earlier, then you should see better outcomes as well. And that's, yeah. what we, that's what we found. Yeah, and it, and it seemed like, and, and, and from the article, it, it paints a picture of, of also creating a more comfortable environment uh, for, for people who are waiting uh, for, for different types of care. So maybe, maybe we, can, we can transition and talk a little bit about 
or actually turn our focus to what you wrote about the work you're doing there um, at the Crisis Response Center and, and Connections AZ. Um, can you talk, uh, Margie, about you know the, the the starting point, the problem or scenario that you faced, and, and maybe as you tell that story, introduce the listeners to the organization and the type of care that's being provided there. Um, sure. So our organization's Connections AZ, Connections Arizona, and we run crisis centers, mental health crisis centers, and these are places that were developed as an alternative for people in mental health crisis so that they don't have to go to jail or they don't have to board in emergency rooms. And so they can really get whatever care they need on demand. It's, it's kind of like a big psych emergency room. And so we get patients who come in, about half of our volume comes directly from the police, dropping people off, bringing them for treatment instead of to jail. We get people who were transferred from emergency rooms, people who walk in. And our organization has been running a uh, pretty large crisis center called the Urgent Psychiatric Care Center up in Phoenix um, since the mid-2000s. sees about 2,000 patients a month. And down in Tucson, which is where I am, the county had built a crisis response center. And so county had an election. They built this wonderful crisis center. It opened in 2011, and it had a lot of process issues. Um, there were a lot of long waits. There were a lot of safety issues. And after they had been under some corrective actions and things like that with the state. And so after a series of those, the um, – the Behavioral Health Authority that was responsible for this CRC asked our organization to come and take over the management of it because of the success that we had had up in Phoenix. So that's when I moved from Dallas to Tucson. And so that was kind of the problem. The problem is we had this wonderful crisis center. We had wonderful staff, but the processes were such that there was there was a lot of concerns about the quality of care and the safety mm-hmm. and and the weights and the just inefficiency in the process was, was a large part of the issues. Sure. And one question I have, because I've done more work with, um, or I've never done work with a standalone uh, mental health or psychiatric facility. Um, what, what I'm used to seeing in a general hospital emergency department is that they have a couple of sort of separate special rooms uh, for, for patients who come in uh, with particular uh, mental health needs. Is it, is it better, better care, better environment? Uh, for patients um, to go to a, a specific crisis response center as opposed to a general emergency department? How would you compare that? Um, yeah, I think it is because it's really set up um, to meet the needs of the people in crisis. Mm-hmm. And so we've got several different components. We have a 24-7 walk-in urgent care clinic. So that's just you know kind of just like a standard clinic. You know, you walk in, you get seen, need a med refill, I'm new to town, you need to get hooked up with services. So we have that component. And then the kind of the heart of it is our 23-hour observation unit. And so this is rather than separate rooms where, um, you know, like an emergency room, people are isolated, they're in these separate rooms, there's all kinds of EKG leads and sharp things hanging around, you know, it's noisy, no one around them really has any psych experience. And so, you know, in in ERs, people just kind of wait in those spaces Mm -hmm. without you know, much therapeutic care going on. So in our, in our observation unit, it's a large open space because if people are a danger to themselves or danger to others or psychotic, the way you keep them safe is to be able to observe them and to be able to have staff interacting with them. And so it's, it's an open area. Um, we have 
behavioral health techs that are interacting with them. We have peer supports who are people with their own lived experience with mental illness who've gotten training on how to use that experience to better engage with people. Got nursing 24-7. We've got psychiatrists or nurse practitioners or PAs 24-7. And then a lot of social services staff who was really trained on discharge planning and involving the families and the clinics and trying to, to um, you know, get, get things set up such that the person can go home. So we assume that we can resolve the crisis and get that person home, which we do about 60 to 70 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. And these are folks who, if they were in an ER, would be put on a list of board for a bed for an inpatient psych bed. So mm-hmm. we're able to prevent a lot of those admissions by getting the, the care done quickly. And then another important thing is that we do our best. We take pretty much anybody. Um, you can't be too agitated. You can't be too intoxicated. And a lot of those folks, if you know, if they were taken to a, if a crisis center said, well, we can't take people who are super agitated, they'd end up either brought to jail, which is what we're trying to prevent, or they would go to an emergency room where they would probably be restrained on a gurney somewhere. And with our staff and our space. Well, we're able to de-escalate a lot of those folks so that they don't end up needing to be restrained and have things like that um, happen to them. Now, when you talk about all the different staff and the different roles involved in, in this very specialized care, um, in, in the article, you talk about getting st- input from staff via town hall meetings and rounding. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that process and, and why that seemed to be an important part of the story? Um, yeah, a lot of what we needed to do, um, there was a lot of culture that needed changing, and there was a lot of, um, it, it had been hard on the staff to be working in a place where, I mean, they were all good people. I was right. I was blown away by just the, the level of training and the caring and the compassion of, of the staff. They were wonderful, but they knew that they were working in a system that was not doing the best it could for the patients. And so, um, and, you know, that had been hard for them. So they needed, you know, some kind of, that was kind of traumatizing to them and they needed, um, you know, to be able to work through that. And so we, and there was a lot of distrust as well. Like this new company's coming in, they're taking over, like what's going to happen. And so we did a lot of town halls where the first month just listened. Um, Just, you know, tell us what's going on. Tell us what your concerns are. And there was, you know, some of them were even, kind of afraid to to say anything negative because they were afraid they might get in trouble, you know, Mm -hmm. so they had to, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess from how they had been managed before. So there was a lot of just trust building and listening for that first month. And then um, I am a, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. So I was down there working shifts. Like our CEO had been a psych tech back in the day. He was down there on the floor. You know, so having, having the leadership down there actually working and experiencing what's going on and what the, the issues are, I think, um, did a whole lot to help us have an understanding of what the problems were, but also get buy-in from the staff that we were serious. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a phrase I, I, I don't think I had ever heard before I got into healthcare, but um, the, this phrase, um, either uh, emotional safety or psychological safety, would, would you say building trust and, and helping people understand it was okay to speak up? It sounds like that was something you were focusing on, not just physical safety, physical harm, right? Yes, that was a huge thing. And also, um, in crisis, I mean, the whole thing with, that's why I like it, is it's so unpredictable. So, you know, you you think you've seen everything, and then tomorrow happens, and you see something else, right? And so you can't have a rule for every scenario. It just can't, you know, just can't do it. And so, but our staff had been 
kind of conditioned to be very afraid of breaking a rule and getting in trouble, mm. you know, sometimes I've become almost like the United Airlines thing, almost to the point of absurdity where they couldn't really use their creativity. And so a lot of what we did too is really instill, we support values-based decision-making. So if you know what our values are, which, you know, we went through a whole lot in articulating our values, but when it comes down to it, it's follow the golden rule and be safe. Mm. And you know, if you see something you've never seen before and you need to make a decision in the moment, if you do it in good faith based on those values, then we'll back you up. And that was a, a huge culture shift. Well, and in the aftermath of, you know, that passenger being dragged off the United flight, their CEO has, has talked about the need to allow employees to use, whether you want to call it good judgment, common sense, to not be too bound by rules and policy that that seemed like a, a move in the right direction there I, I like that phrase value-based decision making and you know as a follow-up I'm curious how would you explain to people you know with lean uh, you know people hear about standardized work or whether it's lean and six sigma reducing variation but it sounds like in some environments um, like you said you can't have a script for every possible thing that could happen um, there's some variation that happens and, and needs to be reacted to or, or accounted for? Were, were there any fears that that lean would mean uh, too much rigidity? Or did you guys make it clear that, that this was meant to be supportive, not limiting? Um, I think in the beginning, maybe a little, um, you know, that, well, we've taken our decision making away or things like that. But um, we've always reiterated, though, that if you have a reason for doing something outside of the normal process, then you just need to articulate what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like a good example of, of sort of like the United airlines thing is, you know, early on, um, I walked in and there were, you know, we, we, like I said, we get people brought in by police. So we had a kid that was in handcuffs. Um, you know, and she was kind of trying to bang her head on the wall and the staff was kind of standing around and the police mm -hmm. were standing around, not doing anything. And so I'm like, what's going on here? And they're like, well, we can't do anything until a parent signs them in. They're not a patient yet, so we're not allowed to touch them. Mm. I'm like, well, that's just ridiculous. You know, like, mom's on the way. Um, you know, you act in good faith. You do the right thing. We'll back you up for that. And that's kind of an example of, you know, doing the right thing versus getting and using your creativity and just acting in good faith rather than just following a rule blindly to the point of absurdity. Yeah. Well, and I've heard, I like the way you put that, um, you know, there's examples in other areas of medicine. Um, I think uh, Geisinger Health comes to mind where there was an article, this is going back 10 years ago, where cardiac surgeons were working on standardizing protocols and what was happening before, during and after certain types of procedures. And, and they established that same expectation. If you need, if there's good reason to deviate from a protocol for that patient, then do it. But you need to be able to explain why. It wasn't just, oh, I didn't feel like following the protocol today, that there had to be good clinical reason, patient-based reason for doing that, which to me, that seems like uh, the right expectation. Yeah, I mean, we have really great clinicians and you want them to use their clinical brains and you know, explain their decision-making and then, and, and telling people that we trust them to make the right decision, I think. Um, like going back to the psychological safety, you, you know, if you trust your staff, then it's not rule breaking. It's, you know, it's articulating your, your clinical judgment. Yeah. 
So you, you talked about values, um, and, and that's so important in healthcare. In, in the article, you also talk about defining um, outcomes and measures that tied into those values. Can you can you talk about what some of those those measures were and how that connected to values? Sure. Yeah. One of the things that we needed to do as part of this process is looking at what is our mission, vision, values. Um, what is the purpose of the clinic area versus the purpose of the observation area and kind of did like a little mission and vision for each of those. And then what are our core values? Because we're talking about this values-based decision-making, we needed to articulate what those values were. Um, And then from that, we used a a lean tool called a critical to quality tree to then translate those values into some some measures. And so the ones in the paper are a subset of our larger set that we've done, but... um, so some of the values were we need to do things timely. If you've got a crisis, you got a crisis. You need to be seen quickly. So that's where your throughput measures come, come in. And those are based kind of off the Joint Commission's Emergency Medicine Corps measures. So door-to-doctor time, um, door-to-door dwell times. Um, least restrictive is a very important value, especially in behavioral health, um, both in terms of, of restraints and you know, re- reducing the need to restrain people and do things in a coercive way, um, but also in terms of their, their disposition. So one of the things we measure is how often do we send people home versus send them to the hospital? How often do we do voluntary treatment versus involuntary? But the one in the paper that we were concerned on, concerned about in that moment was our staff, when people would get agitated, they would call the campus security to come and help them. And so we really wanted to diminish that because we're, we should be the behavioral health treatment experts and not involve like a coercive, law enforcement type mm-hmm. type you know response um another one was partnership so a crisis center is a very important part of the community we get like i said we get drop off from the police that's why we measure how fast we get the police in and out so they'll use us instead of jail um the one we take people from emergency rooms and because of our process issues a lot of times we were full and so we weren't able to take those patients out of the er's into our facility and so we're on diversion a lot and so the measure that's in the paper is the time that we're on diversion so are we being a good partner to the emergency rooms in terms of being able to accept their patients okay and then you know mo- moving on you know i think there, there's a great example set in your work in the article here of uh, you know fighting the temptation for people to jump to solutions um you know usually uh, everyone's got some idea of uh, how things should work but it looks like you went through a fairly structured process around understanding a current state and using that as a, a baseline to define an ideal process and some paths forward. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, that process and why that was important? Yeah. Like, so after we kind of got straight, well, what's the clinic supposed to do? What's supposed to happen there? What's supposed to happen in the OBS unit? We got uh, frontline staff together as well as management and started mapping out. Like we, we kind of put everybody in a big room with a bunch of snacks and started math. That always helps. Yes, snacks always help. Um, but what what's the process? And kind of like, as you know, um, from I'm sure from doing some of this work, usually there's not just one process. There's yeah. there's a whole lot of well, the way I do it is, and then the way I do it is. You know, so we went through all of that to um, you know see well what's really going on, and then challenge them to come up with the ideal process. And that was actually kind of a difficult exercise. Um, because they hadn't really been asked to do that. They're like, well, this is the way it is. I'm like, yeah, but how would you want it to be? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it can't be this way because of that. Well, imagine that that barrier is not there. Mm-hmm. How would you want it to be? And so we worked through then how 
you know, given our values of doing things quickly, least restrictive, um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, staff had complained that a lot of the paperwork was redundant. It's like, well, do you really need to do that assessment if someone's doing the identical assessment like an hour later? Um, but really challenge them to what should it look like in your mm -hmm. ideal world? And then from there, um, we started then planning out well, how we're going to implement this ideal process. Did, did you have to try to... Um... I don't know. I mean, we talk about different phases of the intervention here. If the gap is quite large from current state to ideal, did, did that scare anybody? Or how, how did you sort of uh, decide to take things along maybe one step at a time so that that gap didn't get overwhelming or paralyzing? Well, the first um, set of improvements was a pretty big step. Um, like we kind of were using the phrase, we're just going to rip the Band-Aid off and just mm -hmm. do it. Um, so and. The other thing, too, is it's kind of thinking back to that time. I mean, it was kind of stressful because we, we April midnight on April 1st, we were responsible for this this facility where we knew that there were safety issues. Um, you know, people had, had, had died in there before. And we every minute that we didn't fix things and when we knew the process was broken, it was like just waiting for the shoe to drop. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were really wanted to move quickly. Um, but we also had to, you know, be methodical about it. So we did all of this, um, like the first month we were pretty much like doing the town halls and listening, you know, the second month we were kind of doing our values and then process mapping. And then, you know, the third month we were planning the implementation and then July 1st, so really just three months later, um, we did a big process change that had many, many, um, many changes. So we completely changed the way that we do the triage, um, we completely changed the flow. We changed all the documentation. And that was a very big, dramatic change. And the outcomes of that were, were you know, pretty positive. Um, we saw the injuries go down. We saw the calls to security go down. We saw the throughput go down. Um, but what happened, though, is because we were appropriately triaging people, the way it was before is so not everyone has to be seen by the physician in, in a crisis center like this. You could see like a licensed uh, social worker and then um, some people are discharged having not seen the, seen the doc. Well, they, when we changed the triage tool, we were appropriately identifying people who were high risk and needed to be seen by the physician. Mm -hmm. And so the percentage of people, and I forget the exact numbers, but it uh, I almost doubled, I think, the percentage of patients that were actually required to be seen by the doc vastly increased and so the door-to-doctor time actually increased and then the number of patients going back on the OBS unit increased and we didn't have the doc staffing to, to meet that demand and so that's what phase two was if we looked at our physician staffing and the times that they were there and we shifted around the time some and then we added a shift. So and in, in, in the journal article um there's, there's, it shows the charts here. And um, for one, I, I always kind of pet issues of mine. It's great to see improvement, but I, I always appreciate seeing it represented, you know, for one as a run chart instead of just a simple before and after. Uh, better yet, you, uh, you include control charts. Um, and, and, it, and it shows uh, the, the door to doctor time, the, the increase from baseline and then the decrease to being even better than baseline. Was there anybody who... Um, was uncomfortable with that, worried about seeing that uh, it looks like the measure is getting worse. How, how did you work people through 
Yes, that. Um, that was one of the most challenging things was um, with our physicians and our, I remember one of them, our CMO was down, down there and one of them was quite upset about this whole thing and then she said, well, why did you um, make all these changes not having enough doc staffing? And he kind of looked at her and said, well, because we care about the patients right now more than the doc staffing. Mm. And um, because yeah, we, we had to do that. And then then we adjusted. But, yeah, that did make some people uncomfortable. It made everybody uncomfortable. But um, it was it was necessary. Yeah. It was that something that I mean, sometimes we don't know until we make a change. That, oh, here's a, a side effect or something else we need to tweak. Or was it a necessary step? Was it anticipated and, and just necessary? You know, it, it was necessary to get the patients to the right, safest place in mm -hmm. the building mm -hmm. and have them seen by the docs. And we didn't know that it was going to, you know, we did. And actually, too, when we did all of this, we didn't have any baseline data because all that data had been erased. And so we were kind of flying blind a little bit in some of our baseline data, like we would do some spot chart, chart checks here and there, but we didn't know for sure what percentage of people were being seen by the docs, and we didn't have a really good baseline door-to-doc -door time. We just knew that it was long at that time. And so, you know, we kind of just said, well, this is the right thing to do. We need to get the patients to the safest part of the building with the highest staff-to-patient ratio around them, and they need to be seen by the docs. And then we saw the effect of that. And then, you know, quality, it's an iterative process. So, you know, we did our, we didn't plan phase one and then phase two. We did phase one and then realized we needed to do phase two and, you know, and then so forth. You just always do cycles of improvement yeah. on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that happens sometimes where, um, you know, sometimes you just, you don't know what you don't know, but looking at the charts here and, um, you know, just give people the numbers, you know, the door to dock time looks like, you know, around July, 2014, I mean, it increased from an average of 7.5 to 10.6. That's, you know, three minutes longer, but then what you were pointing to, which might've been surprising or counterintuitive to people in that same time frame, the door to door total time fell from 436 minutes to 174. So that's, that's quite a dramatic reduction of, gosh, uh, is that about four hours in reduction? Let me do the math. 436, yeah. Yeah. So 174. That's almost four hours reduction. That's huge. Yeah. So that was in the clinic area. So mm -hmm. when we, there's, there's like this walk-in clinic area and, you know, saying we needed to really determine like what's the purpose of that area. A lot of times people were being held in there for hours to see if they got better, to see if they needed to go into the observation unit or not, sometimes even overnight. Um, and that area is not ligature safe because with you know, psychiatric care, you have to worry about those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, um, really defining that this is a walk-in clinic. Treatment doesn't happen in the clinic. Um, you know, you can get a med refill, you can see a doc in here, but if you are symptomatic or dangerous enough to the, you know, to the point where you need treatment or meds or some kind of intervention, then that needs to happen in the observation unit. Ah, okay. And so that's what led to a, to a lot of that. And as it points out here, when you, when you did that phase two change, the door to dock time fell um, to just under three hours and the door to door dwell time in the clinic um, was reduced even uh, a little bit more. So great to see that, that sustainment and, now that here we are two and a half years later, how, how, how are things, how are the measures now? 
so for the patients who go through the clinic, they're in and out in like two hours. And so we don't have door to doctor time for that because they're just in and out. Um, for the observation unit, all those patients have to be seen by the doctor. And so that's what went from like, you know, eight, nine hours. Um, and it's consistently still about an hour and a half now. Yeah. And the percentage of people being seen by the doc went way up. So that went from like, uh, was it 57% to 78% mm-hmm. and then 84% in the year later. So, so they were, the door to doctor time went up, but they were seeing more patients and that's why. So as you know, you work through those those interventions, and you know, we might think of those as you know, sort of you know, big bang um, changes to the process and, and to the system. Uh, it sounds like there was also a focus, as you talk about in the article, on um, the organizational culture and, and the ongoing management process. Can you talk about some of those um, changes that that you put in place? What you people might call lean daily management. Sure. So. Uh, one of the first things we did was to institute a daily huddle just so we could plan for the day, know what the problems were um, in real time, start to, to fix problems and really empower the management staff to be, to be working on these problems. Um, so that's just a five minute five. Well, you know, it's, it took a while to get it down to about five minutes, but now it's about a five to 10 minute morning huddle where we just go over, we have a shift report, you know, who's in the building, um, where are the bottlenecks? Where are the hot spots? Um, we have patients who get stuck sometimes because of discharge planning. And so anyone who's been stuck here more than a certain amount of time, we discuss those patients individually um, and any incidents or events that need following up on. Um, so we do that every morning. Um, our management structure, uh, before, there wasn't really like a defined unit leader. And our building, it's a beautiful building, but it's big and it's spread out. Mm. There's an adult unit. There's also a kid's unit. There's an inpatient unit. Um, and there was kind of like a house supervisor that kind of roved around. But there wasn't really like a, a leader of the unit or a leader of each discipline. And so kind of building off of the lean kind of shift manager or shift lead um, concept is we created a lead for each discipline. So in behavioral health, I'll we're very multidisciplinary, so we have lots of disciplines running around. So um, we have a charge nurse who's kind of the, the unit leader. Um, we have a lead behavior health tech. We have a lead crisis worker who's our social services staff, lead coord- unit coordinator, a lead doc. And those, um, they are responsible, like at you know, 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, they are the ones who are responsible for problem solving in the moment um, for their discipline. And then if they, they can't resolve it, then they can bump it up. And so that kind of empowered some, like we're talking about those values-based decision-making, some problem-solving in the moment, rather than just being, oh, well, we can't fix this because, you know, management has to fix it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I see in a lot of hospital settings, uh, you know, you, people who are, at least by title, in a role like that, a charge nurse or a lead role like that, unfortunately get tasked with direct patient care and uh, they have their own patient load and they're not able to, f- uh, to, to serve that role of a lead to help with sort of immediate reaction and problem solving and uh, Im- improvement outside of uh, that reactive moment. So it sounds like you, you, you really tried to let those leads focus on that, that function, that I, what I think is an important function within, uh, within a team. We try, but yeah, the, the patient load is a challenge. Um, when there's surge times, you know, they, they take on patients. We try to not have them have a full patient load 
Um, and that's been, you know, something where we've played with different ways to do that and, you know, shifting the staff around so that they can do that. But that is a constant challenge. Mm-hmm. But yes, having them free to do the problem solving is, is enormously important. Yeah. So, um, you know, one, one thing you, 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 know, you state, um, you know, I think you know, fairly uh, definitively in the article is that lean uh, methods uh, are, are applicable to healthcare. There are there are some who have written journal articles saying um, saying the opposite, but you, you know you've proven out through experience here um, that that lean applies. Um, you know if if, you know, how, if if you were let's say at a um, you know psychiatric uh, association conference, um, if you were to meet uh, a physician um, you know who is really skeptical. Um, about lean and you know, kind of huffed and, and say, oh, well, you know, factory, blah blah blah. This doesn't work in healthcare. I mean, I, how, how would you respond to that? I mean, I guess, I guess your story is a response. Uh, your yeah. you know, the article, but what else would you say? I mean, I guess I would tell them the story, and then you know, there's there's concepts in lean that are beyond just the oh, we're focused on throughput. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you reducing waste, waste, which is wait time, then treatment starts earlier. Well, if treatment starts earlier and a big goal of us in behavioral health is to do things in the most least restrictive way, then we can avoid people having to go into restraints. We can avoid people having to go in the hospital if they don't need to because we started treatment earlier. So that that is very applicable to behavioral health or um, you know, uh, customer service is a huge part of lean, focusing on the mm-hmm. customer. Um, and I think we'd all agree that the you know, that's good for patient care. And, and the way Lean talks about it is you want to maximize the value added time. Mm-hmm. So if we look at ways where, it's so one of the things we looked at is, well, there's some waiting that's just inevitable. Like, so say someone comes in the our clinic area and they need to be admitted to the OBS unit because they're, you know, they're high risk, then they're going to have to wait a little bit for the nurse to come get them. Well, let's have one of our peers talk to them during that time. Then that becomes non-wasted time and it's more therapeutic. So there's, just different, um, these concepts around lean, are they align nicely with the kind of care that we want to provide. Yeah, and I mean, I think the article really spells out um, the focus on, on safety for the patients and staff um, providing um, what's needed. I, I think sometimes people have a knee-jerk reaction to lean because unfortunately, you know, for decades even, their organizations have tried to tell them how to do things. Where lean, I think as the article spells out here, is... Uh, a mindset and approach for getting staff input and, and providing, let, letting people be flexible when it's needed. So I, I really appreciate that you help emphasize that. Yeah, I think of it kind of it's like a sonnet. So like, you know, your sonnet has to be iambic pentameter and the, <laughs> the, the things have to be the rhyming couplets and all of that. And that's very structured. But then how many sonnets are there, right? And there's beauty and there's art and all the sonnets. So there's no, it's not like, a, the structure of a sonnet limits your creativity. And so it's sort of the same in healthcare. There's a structure and there's a process, but then what you do with that individual patient within that structure and process, the art of medicine is still there. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think there, there's, you know, there, there, I think some people read this article would be um, surprised to hear the outcomes that um, the, the lean process that you went through um, actually helped lead to more individualized care, which I, that, that, that seems like the, the right goal and the right approach. I'm glad you were able to accomplish that. Yeah, I mean, if you are getting people what they need and not doing all this redundant, wasteful stuff, then you actually have time to, to focus on the patient, focus on the customer, and then you know, get them what they need. 
Yeah. Now, in your behavioral health setting, was there anything you discovered or anything that you would point out um, that's unique about the behavioral health setting that um, made it more of a challenge or anything you had to do differently um, through this lean approach? Um, I don't know that it was the, the behavioral health setting itself. I mean, you have to kind of know what your what your goals are. It's different than, than a regular hospital setting in that um, that the space makes a huge difference and what space you're putting people in and which patients need to be in which area of the building and what that area of the building needs to have in terms of staffing. I mean, that's sort of specific to behavioral health, maybe a little, but, um, you know, but the concepts are the same. Um, to, to wrap up here, um, do, do you have any any other kind of final lessons learned or advice that you would want to share for people who are listening who uh, are trying to solve these types of challenges in their setting? Um, I guess my advice would be to involve your staff. Um, actually, I mean, we involve staff quite a bit, and pretty much the main complaint that I heard is that we some staff who wasn't involved wanted to be more involved. So I think staff really value being asked their input and that that's just a, I mean, they're going to tell you things you don't know. Um, you can't solve a problem from a boardroom without actually, you know, you got to be there on the floor. So, and that's one thing is they'll tell you things you don't know and, and help you have a better product, but also they will feel more empowered and they will, you know, be more satisfied and, you know, be more engaged if they, the more they can be involved. Yeah. And that's, I think that's great advice for any setting, whether it's behavioral health, um, healthcare more broadly, or um, any organization, um, the, this idea of, you know, respecting the people who are doing the work and, um, you know, being supportive as a, as a leader in an organization. So thank you, uh, Margie, for, for emphasizing that along with all of the great results in your article. So um, I, I do want to again mention that this was published in the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety. So I want to thank uh, the folks at the Joint Commission for making the article, at least right now, it's, it's uh, freely available to read online, the, uh, the full text article. I, I think I learned about the article because of an email um, that was sent out by the Joint Commission folks. So I would encourage people to go um, check out their website, check out the journal. And again, we've been uh, joined today by uh, Margie Balfour. Uh, Margie, thank you so much for the article and um, sharing uh, your story here with us today. I really appreciate it. It was great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.